The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. and welcome to the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. My name is Chris Martin and I'm so glad you're with us this morning because our text from the Gospel of John means a lot to me and I think it's going to mean a lot to you. We started our study last week. We covered two entire verses. This morning we're going to increase the pace a little bit and we're going to cover three entire verses and next week we might go into turbo speed and cover six verses but haven't decided on next week yet. We've got three verses that I think you're really going to enjoy. As you've seen on the screen, uh, I've titled it Light and Life. Uh, you'll see why once we get into it. But the context that we're talking about uh, from the Gospel of John, I want to remind you from last week what the purpose is because it sets the stage for this week's lesson. We learned last week that John chapter 20, at the very end of that chapter, talks about John's reasons for writing so that all of us, everyone in humanity, can believe from his writings that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the question then is, who is Jesus Christ? And last week, we tackled that question in two verses, chapters 1 uh, and 2, and then we also looked at chapter 14. We kind of covered, I guess, parts of three verses because I really didn't touch much on verse 2. Uh, but it said in verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Uh, sorry, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Uh, we talked about last week the application of that uh, study, uh, that verse about God being that Jesus, the Word, was with God, and He was God, is that because He's God, we can know the truth about God and what He's like. We looked at numerous verses in our Old and New Testament talking about how uh, through the Messiah we can see who God is. In the Old Testament it was promised, in the New Testament it was realized. We also saw application last week that because he is God, his death on the cross was sufficient and acceptable sacrifice for all of mankind's sin. We talked about how if he's just 100% man, that, that he could only die for another man, or maybe two other men, but he certainly couldn't die for all of humanity because that's not a fair enough trade-off. But if he's 100% God, and he's also 100% man, then that sacrifice is worthy of being sufficient and acceptable to cover the sins of everyone who has ever lived. So we also looked at the fact that in addition to being 100% God, he's also 100% man. We looked at verse 14, the word became flesh and took up residence, or some of your translations say tabernacled among us, lived among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We learned that conclusion, as I said a minute ago, he's 100% man, and the implication of that, we looked at last week, he was able to die. Uh, as a, if he was just God, he would, you'd kill the apparition, but he wouldn't die. As a man, he could die. 
he was also able to understand. We cross-referenced the book of Hebrews in uh, chapter 4, talking about how he uh, is our high priest and able to intervene with God the Father for us, understanding everything we go through, all of our temptations, all of our anxiety, all of our struggles. Uh, we also learned that he became our example, that we see in him uh, the essence of good behavior. And for us now to say, I want to be like Christ, means I want to be the best that he's called me to be. And he also sanctified human life. By coming as a human, he recognized human life is valuable. And it was so valuable for him willing to take the role of a human, to become 100% human, uh, but he died for humankind sanctifying human life and the significance of life. So with that background, we then transitioned by going back to verse one and talking about why did it just call him Jesus? Why does he use this word logos? Why does he use the word word? And I told you, uh, going back to the fifth century uh, BC, we talked about uh, this Greek philosophy concept that the universe and everything in it is not chaos because change is not random. Uh, the Greeks believed it was ordered. It is ordered. It's caused by divine reason or logos, which gives the command to control all things. It's the divine consciousness holding the universe and everything in it in order. So when John uses the word logos to introduce Jesus Christ, he's saying to everyone in Greek and Roman culture, the philosophers got it right conceptually. There is a higher order that holds everything together, that created everything. That is the reason why we have laws of physics and laws of mathematics and laws of gravity. That order comes from an intelligent being, and his name is Jesus Christ. So he put ancient Greek philosophy together with Christian philosophy, and it was a brilliant, inspired by the Holy Spirit concept of how to introduce the world to Jesus Christ was. We're not done. He is 100% God. He's 100% man. He's the word of God, but the reason we're still asking this question of who's Jesus Christ, the single most important question anyone can ask is that John gives more characteristics. He gives more insight into who is the person, Jesus Christ. Uh, we learned by way of application last week that mankind has yearned throughout history to understand the divine. But God has spoken to mankind personally and directly through Jesus Christ. So this week, we're going to see more of that exact point. We're going to see more application of scratching the itch, so to speak, of the yearning of mankind to understand the divine, understand who is Jesus Christ, who is God. And we're going to see that in a neat way this morning using the concepts of life and light using light and life to illustrate him and what he does and what he means, and then by way of application, what that means for us. What does it mean to say Jesus Christ is life? What does it mean to say Jesus Christ is life? So we're going to do a deep dive on that. That's why we're going to spend the better part of the next hour talking about just three verses, and I think you'll understand why we're done, when we're done, why I did what I did. The first point, if you were taking notes, in addition to what we talked about last week, he's God, he's man, he's the word of God, he is life. And we can elaborate on that and say he's the essence of life, but the simplest and truest concept is he is life. Everything you could describe as life, from human life to plant life to animal life to any kind of life you can imagine, Scripture teaches is not only originated through Jesus Christ, it's held together by Jesus Christ. Let's look at our verse, verse 3. 
All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Now, last week, I taught you this point before we got to verse 3, because I had to teach you what Jesus was doing with God. What role did they play before creation, before time was created, before space and matter were created? And we talked about their role in creation, and I used a number of different verses from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the book of Colossians and a couple other verses I told you to show us that God the Father was the architect. Jesus Christ was the builder. He was the carpenter. He's the one who did all of the building. And then the Holy Spirit is, we will see as we go into the lesson, uh, how he made that creation in the meaningful way that we see today. But our verse in verse 3 talks about all things were created through him. And then it kind of gets redundant. You wonder, why is it kind of repeating from the opposite side of the coin, where it says, apart from him, not one thing that was created that has been created. He is creating a clear dichotomy, so there's no debate, there's no confusion. He looks at both sides of the coin. If it was created, he's responsible. Nothing has been created. Apart from him, nothing was created that has ever been created. That means matter, that means time, that means space, that means everything in the cosmos and everything down to the microscopic level here on Earth. What you've got to understand is that he's creating this idea that if you're created, if something is created, it's not God, it's the creation. But if you're not created, if you're pre-existent, then by definition, you are God. Because it said, there's nothing else. If it's created, then Jesus Christ did it. If it's not created, in other words, there's nothing else out there, that's matter, that's space, that's time, then all you have out there is God. So not created equals God. Our point is that anything that came into being had a beginning. Now, to understand this point is not just critically for you to have biblical understanding, have biblical foundations. It's to understand where the world is scientifically on this point. For the entire 20th century, scientifically, the holy grail of astronomical and physics studies was trying to disprove this point. They tried to prove the existence of a steady state. Stephen Hawking wrote his PhD dissertation on this. Stephen Hawking spent his entire life trying to prove this before at the end of his life he said, it can't be proven. In fact, science has disproved it. But the steady state theory essentially said there was no beginning to the universe. There was no Big Bang. There will be no end, and it basically says Genesis is a fable. It's a work of fiction. Stephen Hawking said before he died that the discovery of radioactive waves from the Big Bang disproved the steady state theory. There was a beginning. We can trace the beginning. We, we scientifically call it the Big Bang. And Hawking said, going back to his dissertation, that the Big Bang was offensive for so many people because it had divine fingerprints all over it. So Hawking and Hoyle and Bondi and Gold, the other guys I've got up there on the screen, and millions of other scientists 
spent the better part of the 20th century trying to disprove Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1. And those that studied the Big Bang concluded that, no, there's conclusive evidence of it, and there is no conclusive evidence of a steady state theory. In other words, matter that has always existed, energy that has always existed, time that has always existed. They've scientifically proven that time and energy and matter and everything else associated with it, including gravity and the laws of physics and the laws of mathematics, all had a beginning. John chapter 1, in language that is so simple, a young elementary child can understand it, tells us why. And that was the dichotomy I just showed you, that if it's created, it's not God. If it's not created, by definition, it is God. The creator then, and this is our bridge into the rest of John chapter 1, is the essence of all that is life. In other words, if life is not pre-existent except for God himself, then what we see as life in the creation came from the creator. So our application here then gets down to verse 4, and it says life was in him. Now, I'm going to take these four words in English, four words in Greek, we're going to do a little deeper dive on this because this is really, really important. Let's start by realizing that in all of the book of John, this theme continues. He starts in Genesis 1. He ends in John, sorry, John chapter 1. He ends in John chapter 20. Uh, and remember what I just read to you a couple of minutes ago. Look how it ends. I underlined it for you. You probably missed it the first time I read it because it says they're written so that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we can have life in his name. Now, we're going to study John chapter 20 in a year when we get there, but his point here of the life in his name has a number of different applications that we're going to look at here in a couple of minutes about what that means. But in the middle of John, in John chapter 14, he's got one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible, and we're going to spend a great deal of time on this coming up in a couple of months, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when John talks there in John 1, in John 14, in John 20 about the life, what's he talking about? It's not just the good life or how to live a life that's uh, uh, virtuous or righteous or anything else. It's much more fundamental. Number one, it's physical life. He's the reason for all physical life. Not only is he the creator, not only is he the carpenter, the divine carpenter, but he's the one that holds it all together. A couple of verses for you. I just showed you verse 3 that says, through him all things were created. That's why we covered that by way of introduction. We also get a great little insight in Genesis chapter 2, because Genesis chapter 2 says, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I highlighted dust of the ground because I think it's a great little thing for us to talk about because you could ask the question, not only how did God create us, but out of what did God create us? Because it says very clearly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we were created from the dust of the ground. Have you ever wondered why God didn't create us out of something else? What would happen to human thought? What would happen to human philosophy? What would happen to the human ego if Scripture taught man was created from gold? or silver? Uh, what if man was created from diamond or some other precious gem? What if 
the male species was created from one and female from the other or vice versa. You could see all kinds of problems with that. But when man is created from dust, it's sending a pretty clear signal about how we should view ourselves in reference to our creator. Don't forget in Genesis chapter 3, the curse on Satan is that he had to slither through and basically eat the dirt. It has always been viewed as the lowest part of creation. It's messy. It gets on our feet. It gets on our skin. It gets on our hair. We can't do anything fast enough to try to get it off of us. And it's intended to give a picture of how we ought to view ourselves in reference to our creator. Let me give you a couple little uh, cross-references because I think Paul had this exact comment right. And he talked in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 29 about this whole idea of how we view ourselves. And he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I think that's what John is getting to when he's describing this concept of life with the idea of Genesis chapter 2 verses 7 in mind that we're created from the dust. Now, a neat little reminder here comes from the psalmist in Psalm 103 verses 13 and 14 that says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord, so Yahweh shows compassion on those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So it's saying here in the psalmist, he remembers where we came from, the dust of Adam. He knows after our death, our bodies return to dust, unless there's a resurrection body we get by a separate divine intervention. But the human body left alone starts as dust, ends as dust. And it says he knows our frame. He knows that. He understands human foibles. He understands human weakness. He understands the human sin nature. So when you feel lousy, when you feel miserable, when you feel like the worst, most embarrassing Christian who's ever lived, remember where we came from. We're supposed to feel that way because we are dust, and yet our Creator gave us life. Now, then the question becomes, how did He give us life? And He doesn't give us a explanation of DNA, but he gives us a neat little word picture here. Because going back to Genesis 2, verses 7, he says, and he breathed into his nostrils the ruha, the breath of life. Now, the word I just used there of ruha is the Hebrew word for breath, but it's actually the same word to describe wind, and it's the exact same word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, to describe spirit. So a human's breath, or the breath of God the Father, Jesus, through Jesus Christ, or wind on earth, or wind that God gives, or the human spirit, or God's spirit, any of those contexts, is ruha, and it's pronounced in a way that sounds breathy. It's ruha, and it's intended to, to exhale, to give in the breathy sound. The wind sound, what the Bible describes as the spirit sound of wind, of ha. And it's describing that to describe all of these interrelated concepts of where life comes from. It comes from breath. It can be felt in the wind. 
that gives us life. It comes in the spirit that gives us life. And so it's a neat little word describing the multitude of neat little things that are going on here. And we see something in 1 Corinthians that's fascinating. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a reference to Jesus Christ, a life-giving spirit. Now, here's the neat part. If you were going to translate the Greek there that Paul wrote back into Hebrew, I just told you how you translate it in Hebrew. A life-giving ruach. And so the application, if you think about it, is fascinating. Because the application is we sustain our lives by inhaling, breathing in. Jesus sustains our lives by exhaling. He simply breathes on us. He breathes on us physically when we're removed from our mother's wombs and they spank us and we scream. That's the breath of life. He breathes on us every day and night we're alive, and it continues our breathing as we inhale what he exhales, and as we consume oxygen and carbon dioxide and hydrogen and nitrogen, all the different things in our air that he has created. He has given us the essence of life that we breathe in that he exhales. And then we know, and as we'll see in application in a few minutes through his Holy Spirit, we get even a different kind of life that is breathed on us. So his exhaling, I believe, is how his miracles were done. I believe scripture teaches very clearly the Ruha from Genesis chapter 2 all the way through the end of Revelation is describing the existence and the perpetuation of human life. And it's describing an ongoing breathing process where Jesus Christ literally breathes out. And it is the essence of life that we get in humanity. So number one is physical life. Number two, spiritual life. And spiritual life we can look at and say, okay, this seems a little bit more easy because now we're not talking about human biology. And we somehow think that makes it easier, even though it's terribly not. Ephesians chapter 2. I taught you, and I probably don't need to debate this with anybody, that spiritually we're dead. First Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 makes it clear that to become made alive with Christ is why we use the phrase being born again, because physically we can still be alive, but spiritually we're totally dead. What does that mean? It means that our soul is dead to all things of Jesus Christ. Can someone read a Bible when they're spiritually dead? Sure. Does it mean they're going to get anything out of it? No. Does it mean that a person who is live and vibrant and funny and on top of the world and maybe a leader in business or entertainment or politics uh, seems to have the essence of life in them also be dead spiritually? Of course it does because scripture teaches clearly and the human history teaches that if someone doesn't know God, they are dead spiritually. Now, I've got to pause here for just a second because if I have a debate with anybody on this, it's going to be this idea of how you can be spiritually dead and how do I explain or how do I deal with the fact that I know people who are really, really good people. They're of another religion. Maybe they're of no religion, but they're nice, they're kind, they're philanthropic, they're giving. How do I wrap my brain around this idea of being spiritually dead but somebody can be really, really good in the things that they physically do or how they look or how they appear to us. 
I think the New Testament gives us some illustrations of this in a physical sense that help explain the spiritual. And I've titled this slide, A Note on the Differing Degrees of Corruption, or the different degrees of how dead you are, because dead is dead. There's no degree of death. It's like pregnancy. You are or not. There is nothing in the middle. There are no shades of it. You're either 0% dead, 100% dead, and there's nothing in the middle because if you're not dead, you've got an aspect of life in you, and so there's 0% death in you. In the New Testament, we've got three illustrations of death and life that I think gives us insight on this. I want to teach you these to you real quick. Jesus raised three people from the dead before his crucifixion. First one is the daughter of Jairus. We get this in Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 9. And Jesus was called to the synagogue leader named Jairus who said, my daughter is dying, will you come? On the way there, she dies and someone runs to him and says the little girl died. It's a picture of dead. She was as dead as dead can be, but she still looked like a beautiful little girl. Her skin would have still been pink. Her hair still would have been beautiful and smelled nice. Her skin still would have been soft and supple. She would have looked just as beautiful as she did in that moment of death and she looked in all of her prior nights of just sleeping. But she was dead as dead can be. And Jesus came to the house and instantaneously uh, touched her. I believe he breathed. And it may have been so subtle that the gospel writers didn't pick up on him breathing, but I'm convinced that as he exhaled and said, stand up, that his breath of life exhaling put the breath of life into her, and she uh, woke up from dead and was no longer dead. And she was still had the pink skin and the beautiful hair and the nice smell of a little girl, and it was someone who was not very corrupt in their death. That's a picture of what we people we deal with, some of whom, uh, who are spiritually dead. Second picture, the son of the widow of Nain. Uh, we don't know her name. We don't know the little boy's name. We know she's in a different position. The little boy's in a different position. Because in this situation, what Christ stumbles upon in this particular story, in Luke chapter 11, we see someone who's been dead for probably two days. We know that because it would have taken time to prepare him for burial and then take him on the way to the grave of where they were going to bury him. So at this point, it's not like the little girl, but it's not like somebody who's been rotten in the grave for quite a bit of time. And so it's kind of in that intermediate state where the skin would have been gray, the hair would have been dead, everything about him would have looked like a cold, stiff corpse. There would have been nothing pleasant about it, but decay would not have yet set in. So it's kind of an intermediate state. In that situation, Christ breathed again, Christ touched him, and he came back to life. And I think it's a picture of that intermediate state of corruption, even though his physical healing, his physical rebirth was exactly the same as the daughter of Jairus. Lazarus is my favorite story. We're going to do a whole lesson, if not two, when we get to Lazarus, because it's such a great story, and it's got one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Because Mary and Martha say, please come, he's sick, and Jesus is busy doing other things because he wants to delay and prove a point to a whole bunch of different people. And by the time he gets there, he's not only been dead for four days, he's already in the tomb. And when Jesus says, take the stone away from the tomb, I've got some work to do, they say in one of my favorite King James translation, he stinketh. 
and he's basically saying decomposition has set in. The body is rotting. You do not want to go in there. He stinks. And so Christ doesn't go in there. The stone gets rolled away. Jesus breathes, and as he's breathing, speaks, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus walks out of the tomb. That's a picture of another degree of corruption. So I think from these three different pictures of physical resurrection before Christ's crucifixion, we see in the daughter of Jairus, the son of the widow of Nain, and Lazarus, different degrees of corruption. So I can look around and see someone who's giving, who's loving, who's philanthropic, they look morally like the daughter of Jairus looked physically. Pleasant, sweet, and kind, but still spiritually as dead as the daughter of Jairus was physically. Likewise, I can look at somebody that's just kind of mediocre. They don't really stink in their morality. They don't really stink in their goodness, but they're not great. They're just kind of there doing what they do. And that's a great picture of the death of the son of the widow of Nain. And then Lazarus is the person you look at that you would look at and say they're amoral. They're a pathological liar. They're narcissistic. They don't care about anybody but themselves. They've got a high degree of moral stinkethness. And that would be the equivalent of Lazarus. And so you can look at different degrees of people and whether it's socialization, whether it's just different places, the way they grew up in life, but they are all still spiritually dead unless they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so that's the picture of God raising people from the dead spiritually. That as Ephesians chapter 10 teaches us that only when Christ gives us life spiritually does our soul become in tune with who God is. And so we see this picture of physical life, we see spiritual life, and then we see the third kind of life that he gives us, and that is eternal life. And this is also a neat little point, because we want to raise the question of what is eternal life. And the hard part about trying to figure out eternal life is that we think about it within the context of the life we live. And the life we live is subject to time and subject to a calendar and subject to the years of our lives. And so when we contemplate eternal life, we do it in the context of our frame of reference, which is with time. But the reality of eternal life is that eternal life is not just with God. Eternal life is the life of God. Now this is a huge point and it's important that you do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that eternal life makes you or me a God. That is not my point here. My point is the life of God is a life that is outside the constraints of our world. The life of God has no stopwatch. The life of God has no calendar. The life of God is not measured in years. That's why the psalmist says to God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day because he doesn't have a calendar. He exists outside of time. Eternal life being the life of God also means a life outside of the three dimensions of the universe that we know. Height, width, depth, matter, energy. All of those things God lives outside of. Heaven is outside of. So when we think about eternal life, we're thinking about what you ought to think about in terms of eternal life is not, is it untold millions of years? Is it untold billions of years? Is it trillions of years? No, there's no year. There's no calendar. It's a life with God outside of time, living life as he lived with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit 
from prior to creation, we will live with him after creation, after the end of creation. Uh, and it's a neat little picture of the life we will have with God. Now, some very little cross-references from Scripture. First John, first uh, book of John, not the gospel, the first book of John, 5, 11, and 12. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, all the three kinds we just talked about. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Now, can someone obviously live an entire life and not know Jesus Christ? Sure. But he's saying that's the life that will not know the afterlife, will not know the resurrected body. That person, if spiritually dead, will remain spiritually dead and will not have their, their soul in heaven with God and certainly will not have everlasting life. So it's a picture of God's given us eternal life, but all aspects of life are through his son. Another great passage from Jesus himself in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 30. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I showed you the end of that verse last week, cross-referencing John chapter 1. But here I wanted to show you the entire passage because of how he talks about who's the giver of eternal life. It's Jesus. And he's the giver of eternal life to those who believe in him. And his promise of never perishing is physical, it is spiritual, and it's in the context of being eternal, which means, as I taught you a few minutes ago, outside of time. Now, I want to give you a neat little picture here from the Psalms that I'm willing to bet most of you never heard before, but I just love this application. And it's a great concept of the eternal life, because you think about eternal life, and it's really, really hard to wrap our brains around. It's really hard to contemplate a life that doesn't involve all the things we do. The psalmist gives us a great picture of here on earth, what our relationship with God is like. The most famous psalm that exists, Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. He restores my soul. The reason this is a picture is twofold. It starts with the first one, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He's given the imagery of sheep. And if you're not in the sheep business, you miss the point of the second sentence. Because those of us who don't deal with sheep don't understand what there is about laying down in green pastures. We get the idea that that's a blanket and a nap. And that's not the picture. He's not giving a picture of God gives me my naps. That's not the picture. The point with sheep is they will only eat. They will only drink while standing up. If a sheep is laying down and the most comfortable that sheep has ever been in their whole life and they are surrounded by the greenest green pastures to eat from, with their mouth literally at the blade of grass touching the ship, sheep's lips, the sheep will not eat it. To eat that grass touching the sheep's lips, the sheep will stand up, bend over, and eat. Same thing with a pool of water. The water literally could be touching the sheep's lips and the sheep will not drink. The sheep will stand up, bend over, and then drink. So the point for us is 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. What that saying is, he makes me lay down and I'm not worried about all the needs that I get hung up on. It's a picture of not getting hung up on food, not getting hung up on water, not getting hung up on clothing, not getting hung up on the way I look, not getting hung up on how much money I have, not getting hung up on how much debt I have, not getting hung up on my calendar. If he is my shepherd, I shall not want all of those things because he makes me lie down and have peace and contentment and not get hung up by all that other stuff of life. So how does that happen? That's verse 3. He restores my soul. It describes what Genesis describes in the Garden of Eden as the tree of life, which we see again in the last chapter of Revelation about how we survive in heaven with the same tree of life. And it says just like he's going to restore us physically, he's going to restore our souls and it's not something that starts when we get to heaven. The whole point of the psalmist is not written in the future tense. It's written in the present tense. He is my shepherd today. He makes me lie down in green pastures today. He leads me beside still waters today. He restores my soul today. It's describing what he does for us when we're so hung up about all that other stuff in life that makes us want to stand up out of the green pastures he's put us in and run about and scurry and do all that other stuff that we just spend all of our lives being stressed out about. And that's why the 23rd Psalm is so powerful and so beloved because of the depth of that picture. And it is indeed powerful in this point. So Jesus is life. From last week's lesson, he's God, he's man, he's the word of God, he is the essence of life, he is life-giving, but he's also light. And in the last 15, 20 minutes I've got, I want to hit this issue of light because it's absolutely fascinating. John tells us, going back to John chapter 1 in our study in verse 4, we looked at life was in him, and that verse continues and says that life was also, we could say, was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overtake it. Let's take it in two different parts. Let's take it first of all, and what I've highlighted, which is this idea of light. Why is it describing Jesus Christ as light? The reason, if you know history or you know philosophy or you've just been around a long time, you know that light has always been a picture of illumination. It's always been a picture of wisdom. It's always been a picture of intelligence. It's always been a picture of insight into the right life to live, the right decisions to make. And so light has always been a picture. And so in this, we're going to see not only the reality of the light of Jesus, we're going to see the picture of the light of Jesus. Now, just like with life, we saw it running from John chapter 1 to John chapter 20 plus chapters in the middle, same thing with light. In John chapter 8, one of the great I am passages that we're going to study in a couple of months is I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So it's describing him as being the illumination of the whole world. And if you follow him, you don't walk in darkness, meaning you know truth, you're enlightened, you've got a degree of wisdom. And that light is what leads to the fulfilling life. It can lead to a longevity of our physical life. 
It can lead to peace in our spiritual life. It can lead to an understanding of our eternal life. But it's a picture of life and light in him. Also, neat little passage. Scripture teaches us, going back to Genesis chapter 1 again, that God is light. Given what we know, if Jesus Christ is God, that means Jesus Christ is light. God the Father is light. The Holy Spirit, we could say, is light. And because light has always signified illuminated truth, because God is truth, when God says, I am light, or scripture says God is light, it's describing the physical characteristics of God in the created universe, but it's also describing illuminated truth. Because if you understand what Genesis teaches about creation, what John teaches about creation, you see how the two fit together there. Let me show you a cross-reference of Psalm chapter 27, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? And then notice how he ties the two together. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Neat little cross-reference also tying the same thing we just looked at in Psalm 23. But he's saying Yahweh, the Lord, is my life. We can say Jesus is my light. Now, the other neat little reference also from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, 5, also repeats, God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. And so we've got this idea of describing of the spirit being life that is illuminating. And Jesus, as the tangible aspect of the Godhead, is also light. Now you say, wait a minute, Chris, last week we talked about Jesus being 100% human. He wasn't a ball of light. What the heck are you talking about? Understand Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 gives us the insight that without light, there is no view of reality. There's no visible path forward. There is no health, and there is no life. If in our world there was total darkness, we would not be able to see the reality of our world unless we manufactured light. There would be no visible path forward. We're all stumbling around in the darkness. We would be very unhealthy and dead in a short amount of time, and as a result, there would be no life. The picture of this literally goes back to creation. It's absolutely fascinating because light, like God, exists by itself. Darkness does not exist by itself. Darkness is, by definition, an absence of something. It's the absence of light. Light, on the other hand, as you learn in the second or third grade, is tangible. It's got energy waves. Those waves are visible to the human eye. Those waves can be measured by scientific equipment. It has speed. It has different textures and characteristics. Light exists. It is tangible. You can measure it. You can see it. You can study it. You can do things with it to manipulate it. You can make it. You can do all kinds of different things with it. And it's absolutely fascinating. Now, I want to teach you this point because it's so powerful. Because Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 give us this idea. And it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Now, when we all read this as little kids, we think it's a reference to the sun and the stars. Those don't come until the fourth day of creation. 
what this teaches is when God created what after the 20th century we would call the Big Bang of Genesis 1 of creation, day one of creation, God filled the universe with the light of his presence. Now, we've taught before in class, scripture teaches, no one has seen God the Father. God the Father is always spirit. What exists? Jesus Christ. So what it teaches in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, is God filled the universe with the light of Jesus Christ. The light of the Big Bang, the light of day one of creation was Jesus Christ himself flooding the creation, expanding forth to all corners of the universe, including this little world that we call our Earth. And the essence of Jesus Christ in pure light form spread all throughout the universe. Then the creator who was spread throughout the universe in a blast of light then coalesces matter and energy to create stars, creates matter and energy to create our sun, creates matter and energy to create the moons that can reflect the sun, the planets that can reflect the sun. And those things come on day four of creation. But day one of creation is literally Jesus Christ exploding into the universe with the light of his presence. Now, we know from Scripture, and I've already shown you a couple of them, there's a dichotomy between light and darkness. And we see this in Scripture, we see this in John, and we're going to study it in a little bit more detail. But I want to teach you very clearly that not only is there a physical reality of light and darkness, there is a spiritual and psychological aspect of light and darkness. We talk about someone being in the dark. It's a reflection of them being spiritually dead and not knowing Christ. We speak of someone and the darkness of their choices or the darkness of their personality. Uh, we can also have a physical darkness and all of those things have a negative connotation in contrast to the light. Because we're talking about the physical and the spiritual, We've also got to realize that it's not just something that involves the physical like on earth with our daytime and our nighttime. In the spiritual realm, it is the embodiment of Satan himself. Remember how scripture describes Satan as the king of darkness, as the king of darkness who is responsible for those things that are in opposition to the light. Understanding that dichotomy that in a spiritual sense, the darkness is personified in the demonic realm and their leader, Satan. And therefore, the end of verse 5 makes all the sense in the world. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, I described a couple of minutes ago that darkness is simply the absence of light. It's not something physical. In a, in a physical sense, that's true. In the spiritual sense, it's describing that which has rejected God, but it describes it here almost in battle terms because it's describing yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, i got to say something here almost as a footnote to those of you that love the King James Version. I know there's a couple in class that do because the King James Version has a proper translation, but I don't think they chose the right word. Because in the King James, this little phrase is, yet the darkness did not understand it. And that's one of the multiple definitions of our Greek word here. 
but the one that is consistently used throughout Scripture. If I showed you every other time it's translated, it's translated almost like a battle, and it uses the word overcome. Our Greek word is kata lambano. Kata lambano means to obtain, to take hold of, to seize, to overtake. That's why the translation I just showed you from the Holman translation that Greg preaches from, that I use in our class, is, is the proper translation because Catalambano is almost describing in a physical battle type what is a spiritual battle, and that is to obtain, to take hold of, to seize. And it says uh, in, in verse 5, the darkness did not overcome it. This means from the time that Christ exploded into the created universe on day one of creation, Satan had as his aim, and the demons had as his aim, stopping it, and they failed. They had the aim of him not coming to earth, and they failed. They had the aim of him dying and remaining dead, and they failed. It describes in just a couple of words what is a eon-long battle that Christ won, and the demons and Satan did not overcome. Now, how do you apply this? You apply this in the application of let our light shine. Now, let me teach you this a little bit because this is more than just a nursery rhyme. Because John chapter 9, Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And a lot of everything we've studied, we look at that and go, yep, makes perfect sense. I get it. Where we lose it a little bit is Matthew 5 where he says, what happens when he's not in the world? Matthew 5 says you, us, the believers of him who are listening to his teaching, you are the light of the world. Your light must shine before all. So how does this work? He says he's the light of the world when he's here physically. He goes up into heaven and he says we that remain become the light of the world if we believe in him and if we're trying to be like him in all that we say and all that we do. And he gives us the command, our light about him must shine before all the world. How does that work? Great verse on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 tells us what to do. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give, we could say us, because that's what he's talking about, our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So it's saying he's given us the light of understanding, the light of truth, the light of knowledge about all these incredible things about God, and we see them through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. It means he has left us his truth. He has left us the person of him in our heart from that part of God's spirit that resides inside of us and tells us what to say and we're stumbling for words and we're witnessing, that tells us what to do and all the different relationships we have and the different ministry opportunities we have. And so the application to this becomes really, really profound of tying light and life together. And I'll give this to you in just a couple of minutes. First point, life and light cannot be separated. I taught them together because even in the same verse, he ties them together. I had to stop at verse four to talk about life but the rest of that verse is light and life together. So we should not try. So why am I teaching that point as an application? Because in our world, we try to separate it all the time. 
the part that tries to separate the life part, in my experience, numbers-wise, are the young people, the kids, the high school kids, the college kids, and then those in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s that still act like the high school and college kids. For them, it's all about life. It's all about the fun I'm having. It's about the things I can do. It's about the places I can go. It's about the people I can be with. It's all about life. And there's not a lot of light because it's arrogant. It's self-centered. It's focused on them and their pleasure and their happiness and their relationships. The other end of the spectrum is highly uh, susceptible of people who I would put the label of fundamentalist Christian Christianity on. Those that are so dogmatic, they're just hung up in their rightness. They know the truth. They're dogmatic with the truth. They love to preach the truth. They love to yell the truth. They love to do everything they can to put the truth in somebody else's face. And they lose the balance of whether or not what they are doing is life-affirming. Is it life-giving? Is it life-palatable for someone who is looking for why they ought to believe in Jesus Christ and seeing the person that's communicating to them. If it's just dogmatic light and it's not combined with the joy of life and spiritual life and eternal life, they don't want it, much less they don't understand it. So light and life have got to be together. It's not saying we don't enjoy life, we don't take trips, we don't have great relationships. It's saying it's balanced with the truth of life. And we can get all dogmatic and hung up about the truth of life, but don't lose sight of the fact that it's got to be life balanced. It's got to be life encouraging. It's got to be life drawing. It's got to be life giving and not just preaching to somebody hell and brimstone or why you're right and why they're wrong or why you're going to heaven and they're going to hell. It's got to be balanced with light and life or else it's offensive and we can't be the instruments of Jesus Christ that God wants us to be. Great little cross-reference on this point is Psalm 36, verse 9. Psalm 36, verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. That means because he is the essence of my life, physically, spiritually, eternally. I got to look to him to know how to do it. And this is the reason why when I pray after virtually every single lesson I've ever taught you guys, and I've done this for decades now, I conclude my prayers before I say in Jesus' name, I pray, let us be a light in a very dark world. I'm, I'm praying Psalm 36, 9. Because in his light, I see light. In other words, in his truth, I see truth. In his wisdom, I see wisdom. In his righteousness, I see righteousness. And then I not only have the ability to lead that life, I have the ability to share that life with all those around me, and my family, my coworkers, my friends. And that's when we become a conduit for life and light to other people. Last little point is we've got to be a light to the world as I end my prayers with. One of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite guys in the Middle Ages, St. Francis of Assisi. Great guy. If you want to know all about him, take me to lunch. I'll tell you all you ever wanted to know about him. But he's got a great quote that says, All the darkness of the world cannot extinguish the light of a single candle. No matter how dark it gets, a single candle lights up. If you think about what a single candle does in a dark gymnasium, 
What does a single candle do on a dark football field? What does a single candle do in a dark city? It's small, but it still illuminates a tremendous amount when it's completely circled by darkness. It's the reason why one of the most beloved children's songs of all time is probably the first one you learned. It's the first one I remember ever singing because I grew up a preacher's kid. I think I learned this before I learned happy birthday. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Now you understand the truth of that song through the lens of John chapter 1, light and life. Next week, I got a couple more verses for you. We're still tackling the question of who's Jesus Christ. If you're going to read John chapter 1, you're going to notice there's a parenthesis about John the Baptist. It starts before chapter 9, verses 6, 7, and 8. John chapter 1 ends with it. We're going to do all of John the Baptist in a single lesson or two, but I'm going to jump into the middle of the parentheses and finish teaching you about the question of who is Jesus Christ as taught in John chapter 1. And then two weeks from now, we'll capture all those verses on John the Baptist. So it's going to be a great study. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we study life, as we study light, we pray and thank you for being our life, our physical life, our spiritual life, our eternal life. We thank you for being our light. And we pray that we can reflect them to others. We can teach them to others. We can show them to others to not only show them what life with you is like physically, what life with you is like spiritually, what life with you means eternally, but be a light that is a draw to them, that's warming to them, that's appealing to them in a very, very dark world that sees us as different, that sees us as an image reflective of you. We thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for the strength. We thank you for the lesson that we learned here today. In Jesus' name, we ask all of these things. Amen. Thank you all so much. I look forward to seeing you next week as we continue our great study in the Gospel of John. And I look forward as we continue studying those things to talk with you at a later time. Thank you so very much. God bless you. Love you all. Take care. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.